chapter 9, we're going to, uh, <clears throat> we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 29 in their context again this evening, and we're going to pick up there. We left off uh, having uh, worked through the first objection to this being about salvation, and uh, I very hurriedly skimmed over the second objection. I'd like to go back to it this evening. This will be uh, our last look in this particular series of studies at the doctrine of election. And so uh, I thought it would be good for us to uh, come back to Romans 9, which is central in our understanding of these things, and look at it <clears throat> in just a slightly different light uh, than we did last week. So as we come to this passage, uh, I pray that the Lord would greatly teach and encourage our hearts. Let's uh, ask the Lord to bless the preaching and teaching of His Word this evening. <clears throat> o oh, blessed Father in heaven, you have spoken, and we praise and bless thee. You have recorded for us your infallible word. And Lord, I pray that we have come this evening with humble hearts prepared to hear from thee. Father, I am weak, uh, I am fallible while your word is not. Father, no man handles your word perfectly. Oh, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would take your word and give your dear children ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive and to believe thy perfect and holy revelation. Father, wheresoever I am in error, preserve them and protect them. And where, <clears throat> where we rightly understand thy word, Father, may our hearts resound in thy blessed truth. Exalt the Lord Jesus and his glorious saving purpose to us tonight. Bless the children and bless all that you've gathered here in Jesus' name. Amen. begin in verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Brethren, let us hear the word of God. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, 
For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Now, if we were to take that parenthesis out, that's there in verse 11, <clears throat> not that we want to take anything from the Word of God, but uh, to understand the thought from verse 10 to verse 12, we would read it, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. <clears throat> As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, that's Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass, that in the place where it was said unto them, <clears throat> Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work, and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious and holy word to our hearts this evening. Well, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, this and the following two chapters are theological battlegrounds, and uh, even among those who are of the same persuasion regarding the glories of God's sovereign grace, uh, there are great uh, and differing discussions as to all that Paul means here. And uh, I do not intend to address those issues but simply to look at this chapter once again this evening and uh, for our purposes attempt to uh, point out that Paul is talking ultimately about election, God's glorious purpose of election 
unto salvation. As I pointed out last week, um, there are many who teach that this context is not about salvation. We're going to do just a brief review. But they say that what Paul is doing here is describing the historical destiny of nations. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about nations. Jacob, Esau, and the nations that proceeded from them. And this is gaining tremendous ground in academic circles. Uh, Not only that, the idea of corporate election is uh, uh, becoming much more popular. Rather than saying, well, God was choosing individuals to salvation here, it's talking about uh, not only the the history and and the, the or the historical destiny of particular nations, but of God's choosing corporately the nation of Israel. So, those are the two primary objections that you will hear, and they are even held by a few, and very few, but a few with whom we would agree on many, many things. Now, uh, those of us that... uh, have heard and read and understood this chapter a different way over the years, may wonder how they come to those conclusions. And uh, it is normally my my particular choice when I'm doing this type of thing to give them to you, to say this is how they understand it. But uh, because we we do want to press on with our studies, this is not the time, I think, to, uh, to set down in any kind of detail why they come to these conclusions. These are just basically what they argue, and we will simply attempt to answer with what we believe to be the plain teaching of Paul here. Now, first of all, the context, context, context is always vital. Brethren, no matter what we're studying, and no no matter what uh, uh, theme we're trying to hammer through, we must always understand context. It is very easy for any of us. It's easy for the cults to take a proof text here and there and say, here, here's what the Bible teaches, all the while putting our own spin on it. And so, from time to time, because we do live in time constraints, uh, you will hear me give particular proofed texts. But then you also are aware, those of you that have been here any amount of time, there are very often that I will read a very large portion so that we'll see that context a little better. And this is one of those times, and I trust that you'll understand why it is so important. The first six verses give us the context for all that flows through the rest of this chapter and chapter 10 and 11. And if we understand those verses properly, uh, I think everything else really, for the most part, takes care of itself if we are faithful to unfolding what is set before us in its context. Uh, those that hold the particular uh, views that I've set before you a few minutes ago uh, that disagree with us have to make a break between verse 6 and 7 in order to establish what they want to say generally. And so I would say, first of all, Paul says to us in verse 2 that he has great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. And this is for the Israelites. If verse 3 were not in there, 
the case might more easily be made for those who disagree with us. But verse 3 is here, and it says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, brethren, when we hear someone say something this strong, and that being inspired by the Holy Spirit, then we know Paul is not exaggerating, and we know that he's saying something deeply important to him. I could wish myself cut off for the Israelites. And this is one of the very first things in the context. Uh, I think that's vital in understanding that Paul would not be saying, I, I wish that I could be accursed from Christ so that Israel might have uh, attained to her particular temporal uh, benefits under the covenant. But that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, to say that, uh, well, Israel uh, lost some of her temporal blessings, which she did because she was unfaithful to the covenant of God, might cause us to grieve, but not to wish ourselves cut off from Christ. So it's not simply an issue, as um, others do claim, of an unfolding of the historical destiny and and uh, Paul uh, uh, perhaps bewailing the idea of temporal blessings uh, and, and Israel's failure to attain them. No. Why is he grieved? As we pointed out last week, if we look at chapters 11 and, uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11 carefully, all the way through, we see Paul saying things like, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> let me uh, paint again just one more bit of context uh, so that you will, as we review here, uh, recall and uh, be able to apply some of these things effectively. It's the fact that Paul has been making a glorious argument from the very beginning of this letter for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has made very clear that the Israelites are just as lost as the Gentiles and that they need Christ too. And that the only hope for anyone is faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ and His precious propitiation. Now, that would, of course, then, as Paul works through the uh, subsequent chapters of Romans, ultimately raise the question, well, now, wait a minute. God made some covenant promises to Israel. And Israel didn't attain to those promises. If you're telling us all this wonderful stuff that now the Gentiles are included in all of this too, how can they have any hope that the Word of God is true if it didn't come true for Israel? You see the, the, uh, the, the argument here. And Paul knows that's coming. I mean, I mean, if we see Paul's extraordinary gift in teaching, it is certainly in the epistle to the Romans because he anticipates chapter after chapter the arguments and the objections that would be raised to the things that he's saying. And then he'll say these things and then say, now, what will we say to this? What shall we say to these things? And then he answers it. Why does he do that? It's not a rhetorical device. He knows the kind of arguments that are going to be raised. And he has just given the glorious 
uh, unfolding of God's eternal purpose in Romans chapter 8, in His sovereign predestination and choosing souls unto salvation to make them like the Lord Jesus Christ, and then anticipates that there will be something raised regarding the issue of Israel. What about Israel? And he begins by saying, Well, my heart is burdened and grieved for my nation. It's not just because they failed in the unfolding of the history of their nation as such. That's included. I'm not throwing that out. But they were made to be a nation in fulfillment to the promises given to Abraham. Abraham was going to be given a seed that was like the sands of the seashore for number. And many of them did not believe in their Messiah. That raises question marks. So Paul says, all right, we'll take that on and we'll talk about it. So his concern is for the nation of Israel. Yes, a nation is unquestionably mentioned here. And there are references to nations. We're not denying that. We're not pitting nations against individuals. What we're saying, and it's going to be part of our argument later on, is that they are both comprehended here, and they both still reveal the sovereign choice of God. So, um, we also looked to see that within the context of chapter 9, Paul uses phrases that he uses all through his other epistles, like children of God, children of the promise, those whom he calls, which are always in the context of uh, salvation. And there's no reason not to understand them that way here, unless something uh, was so compelling that we would have to take another understanding. We also compared uh, portions of Romans chapter 9 to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where both of these speak of being called, and that calling ultimately is to salvation. Both stress that the call is not of works, pointing out God's glorious grace. Both refer to God's purpose, which was before the foundation of the world or before human history. And both point to salvation decided before, as we're told here, uh, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good nor evil, that the purpose of God, and when, as we have already seen, the purpose of God is spoken of in these contexts, it's always before the foundation of of the world. Now that is not said directly here, but we, we get the clear inference that that choice was made well before those children were ever born. And the only other time in Scripture that we see those kinds of choices being made is in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, <clears throat> we then discussed chapter 9, verses 22 to 23, and uh, we see that it says that God uh, hath not the power potter over the clay. How about me read that right? Hath not the potter power over the clay, and of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor. Now, what does he mean? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. And it's the very word Paul uses often regarding eternal destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Once again, we have 
People being prepared, prepared unto something. The something here is glory in the very context of chapter 8. Glory is that, that wonderful time when we will be made manifest as the sons of God. Glorified, finally like Christ. Prepared unto glory. Uh, that would be uh, very hard pressed, I think, for anyone to come to any other conclusion that the idea of glory here is anything but salvation. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And that word calling, again, is, is used by Paul over and over and over with just a few rare exceptions regarding effectual calling unto salvation. So, for those of you that were not with us, that's uh, as brief as I could compress last week, and uh, some of the things that we looked at. We want to pick this up again this evening, because as I pointed out, some say that, it, uh, that this is corporate, corporate election, but not individual election. They will go so far as to say, okay, it's obvious that God is choosing here. But He chose Israel. This is not about choosing individuals. This is about God choosing uh, a nation, a corporate choice. And like I said, this has become very popular in certain circles. <clears throat> Some argue that this is about the elect people of God, this corporate entity, and to nations, the nation of Israel, and to those uh, out of which uh, Israel was sanctified, uh, or apart from which, I should say, apart from which, <clears throat> Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And they say, well, uh, Jacob uh, became the nation of Israel and uh, Esau became the Edomites. And, and this is talking about God just choosing this nation and choosing that nation in the unfolding of His purpose. Well, there's a truth there. But it's not the whole truth. And that's what uh, ultimately... I think uh, must be corrected because left to itself it leaves a distorted view of what the passage is about. Now, <clears throat> first thing I want to point out is in chapter, 15, uh, chapter 9, verse 15 where it says, For he saith, this means God, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Singular pronoun singular pronoun. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom, not on them, the corporate bunch, but whom? Individuals. And this is what he's pointing out. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Now, if you will notice verse 18, it says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And verse 19, Therefore thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who, what individual, has resisted his will? Would have been a good place 
though certainly the whole argument doesn't hinge on this, but this would have been a good place for him to say, for what nation has resisted his will? And then we wouldn't have much of this debate. But it doesn't say that, and it doesn't imply that, because the context, while Paul is saying, I am grieving over my nation, I'm grieving over my brethren, he goes and shows within that context that God chooses individuals. And even if they become, quote, nations, which Jacob and Esau did, the, the very context is God choosing an individual to ultimately make the nation. But we're not simply having a history lesson. He chose Israel because it was going to be the very family line through which Messiah would come and that God's blessed people uh, would come to salvation as the children of Abraham through. Now, <clears throat> he says, On whom I will have mercy. Then, if you look with me in verse 6, it says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, we are talking about a group here. We don't deny that. that that's fine. But the point is, to take the concept of Israel, make it a corporate choosing by God, and then ignore the idea of individuals and say that's not there, uh, I think really has to stretch the imagination if, if we were to take uh, the verses we've already looked at with any kind of seriousness. And uh, I'll show you the conclusion that I'm driving at here in just a moment. But he says, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Who counts them the seed? God, who chose them. Now he does say, within the nation that I chose, how did that begin? Well, it began with God choosing a single individual, Abraham. Selecting him from all the people on the face of the earth. God's sovereign choice. He made a promise to him and from him came descendants. But now Paul is building his argument and defending this idea that we are secure in the promises of Christ. Because it would appear from those of us sitting on the outside looking at the history of Israel, well, God made a promise and then you know, a lot of these people fell away. They were very unfaithful. God brought judgment upon them, had them hauled off to Babylon and, and, uh, and uh, dragged away from their homes. And, and uh, there were uh, horrible uh, uh, breaking of God's uh, covenant oath by the, the, the people of Israel. And it, it looked in, in many aspects like a failure. Then God brought them back together. He always had a remnant which, of course, is going to be spoken of all the way through chapters 9, 10, and 11. And that's going to be Paul's argument that God's always had a people, a remnant, and they are who they are because He chose them. Within the corporate entity of Israel, there are those that were His elect, the remnant that He has chosen to be His people, to be those who would actually know the benefits of salvation. And then, <clears throat> again we see in, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, I say then, hath God cast away His people, that's corporate, 
God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not? That the, uh, that the, uh, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise work is no more work. Now, it's my point in going here. Again, Paul makes clear reference to election, the very election of God, His sovereign choice, not based on what the people do, not based on what God sees the people doing, but His glorious election of grace. And in the midst of this, speaking corporately about Israel, He speaks plainly of an individual. Himself. He says, God forbid, I also am an Israelite. What's his point? God hasn't cast away his people. He chose me. He has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. He knew me. And he tells us all about that in Galatians. He separated me from my mother's womb. And brought me to the glories of Christ. He rejoiced in that. His heart overflowed with joy. And so he's saying, from chapter 9 to chapter 11, God's purpose stands. God's promises are good. I'm living proof that He still has not cast away His people. I'm here. I believe that Christ is the Messiah. He chose me. There is the corporate and there is the, ele- uh, the individual. Election. Choice of God. Unto salvation. Now you see, now this is the point that I'm, I'm finally driving at. First of all, it sounds very good and it sounds a lot nicer in some people's ears to say, oh, God's not the kind of God. He's too loving to choose some people to salvation and and leave some in their sins. And so it sounds very good to them to hear, oh, God chose a nation. The, the election being spoken of here in Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11 is a corporate election. Now, in, in some way, I know in their own minds, they're sincerely trying to get God off the hook of looking like a bad guy. But if we stop and think about that argument, there's a problem with it. Let's grant for a moment corporate election and corporate election of this nation. He didn't choose all the nations. It's the same problem. It's exactly the same problem. He didn't choose all the nations. If if, If the whole idea of God's corporate election was just, well, I've chosen Israel and I have my Israel and everyone will be added into my Israel, so to speak. He still only chose one. And it's vital 
It's the same issue, the same problem. God is just as sovereign in the choice of a corporate entity as one person. Secondly, it's smoke and mirrors to say he chose a nation, he chose corporately, but he didn't choose individuals. What is a nation made up of? Individuals. If we say, we're going to go out and have a volleyball game, and uh, Brother Stephen and Brother Lynn are going to choose up sides. Well, they're going to elect, are they not? Now, when they're finished, they're going to have a team, and there'll be Team A and Team B. Uh, team Frakes and Team Wines. And there will be two corporate entities after they've chosen all the people. But how did they get the entity? By choosing individuals. Is everybody following this? Does this sound peculiar on Wednesday evening? Or is this, does this make sense? It's, it's very easy when we're in argument, especially passionate arguments like this one very often becomes, to, to lay a hold of arguments that sound good just because it sounds like it refutes what the other guy's saying. And we don't want to do that. Better to say, well, I don't know what that passage means, and until the Lord gives me more light, I don't know what to tell you. But I can tell you that at least these passages say this, and I'm pretty clear on that. You see, some try to get around this idea of individuals making up the corporate election by this, by this uh, argument. They'll say, well now, okay, we, we understand you, you can't make a, a real big difference here between a corporate election and individual election because quite obviously if you have this group, uh, then you've chosen the individuals to make up that group. So what they say is God, God didn't choose people to salvation. You have to understand, that's what's driving the whole argument. The last thing they want to admit is that God has chosen some and left some in their sins. And let's, let's be fair. It's very easy to be ugly in these kinds of arguments. And we don't want to be ugly Calvinists. The point is, very often, very sincerely, people look and, and think when they hear what we're saying that we're making God a monster. How could a God of love be like this? How could He leave someone in their sins? He's got to give everybody a chance. Which, by the way, He doesn't. That's another issue and that's another argument that we'll look at. But, but the point is... In their own minds, very often, they're so zealous and so jealous for what they understand as the love of God. They, they just hate that old doctrine that God chose some over here and left some over here. So, they, they, they get around part of this argument by saying, well, now, God didn't choose individuals and He didn't choose a corporate entity. What he chose was the idea of the church. Okay? And, and, and that's... What God chose was, I'm going to have a thing called a church. And then whoever repents and believes will be in it. 
And now, brother, there are books with these arguments. I'm not talking about just things you hear as you're sitting in your living room talking with your friends who disagree with you. There are books written, written with, with these kinds of arguments in them. God didn't choose anybody to salvation. God didn't leave anybody out of salvation. His love is so big and so broad. He wants to save everybody. And so what He chose to do was to have a thing called the church. And all those that will repent and believe will come in it. Well, that's a very nice argument. But the thing is, there's not a single verse in the Bible that says God chose an idea. And there are dozens that say He chose people. Brethren, the weight of evidence is that He chose people. There is no verse that says He chose a thing called the church and lets people come into it. A man by the name of Bruce Ware, who has written on these uh, subjects, uh, <clears throat> gave an, an illustration to a man named Tom Schreiner, who wrote a very excellent uh, study of Romans chapter 9. And the, the illustration is, is like this. Suppose someone decides he wants to choose to buy a baseball team. Right. Well, what does he do? There are n numerous teams out there, and he chooses a team. He's chosen a corporate entity. But there's no, there's no possible way to choose that corporate entity without choosing the individuals that are on that team. And it's complete nonsense to say, well, I'm going to have a team. I'm going to have a team and anybody that wants to just show up and be in it can be in it. So, brethren, these are, these are important things. They're, they're not a matter of just getting down and doing boring, dry-as-dust theological arguments. Ultimately, what lies at the heart of all of this is where... Where does the glory of salvation belong? In the wills of men or in the will of God? The Bible never speaks of God choosing to have an idea which people may uh, join themselves to. The Bible speaks of God choosing people. And uh, we've, we've read many of the verses together that say that. Uh, I simply take you back to the, the passage that we began with last week, and that was one of the reasons I went through the grammar lesson at the beginning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, According as He, God, the subject, hath chosen, verbs, an idea known as the church. No, us. He hath chosen us. He chooses people individuals into a corporate entity called the church, his body, the true Israel of God. Amen. Well, I know sometimes when we go through uh, arguments like this, they can be just a, a, a tad uh, less exciting to our minds than hearing the, the glories of the shed blood of Christ. But brethren, ultimately they are tied. Because God's choice in salvation is bringing men and women out of their darkness and out of their night to the glories of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. 
and that God receives all the glory to the praise of the glory of His grace. God fixed His love upon His bride, the bride for His Holy Son, the, the glorious church that He chose in Christ and sends His Holy Spirit to open the hearts and bring sinners unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He opens their hearts, their eyes, their ears, their minds, that they repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come together and open His glorious, infallible record, we see, He loved me. How could He love me? And we give Him all the glory and all of the praise instead of saying, Thank you, Lord, for letting me join the entity that you chose by my free will. All right. Well, I don't say that to be ugly. I want us to understand this is the point. I've been hearing about ugly Calvinists lately. That's in my mind. <laughs> okay, now, uh, let's look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Let's turn there. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2 speaks of those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, <clears throat> and peace be multiplied. You know, by the way, let me back up just for a moment on that, that very subject. Of uh, it, It's very important. It's very important that we do not parody things with which we disagree in a way that is unfair to, to what others believe. When I say these things, I'm speaking in general terms because very often those within certain camps have different nuances. And they can sit there and say, and deflect rightly and say, ah, that's not what I believe. And that happens. Uh, you, can, uh, you can speak uh, uh, to those within the, the camp that believe in the sovereign grace of God. And you can get different understandings of the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption. Some of them say there's one. Some of them say there's both. Uh, some of them say it's all the covenant of grace. Some say, no, there's the covenant of redemption or the covenant of peace. Uh, you, you can get into all kinds of things. Infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism, and uh, even some things we can pronounce. But all of those issues, you know, you can an enemy can choose one nuance of it and make that the whole argument. And it's not my purpose to attempt to do that. Uh, and uh, it's easy in these kinds of discussions. So I, I do trust that you realize I'm not, I'm not attempting to ridicule. I'm just saying, as I understand it, that's the only way their argument can work out. So, back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. When he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Once again, here we have people, not an idea, not a corporate entity. We have people being chosen, elect by God, according to His foreknowledge. We've already studied the word foreknowledge. Those of you that were not here, uh, you certainly uh, can uh, get the tape, or for that matter, I can even recommend some good works that uh, uh, handle this, both in word studies and in application of the context. But... The whole point is that the foreknowledge of here is God's love before time. 
his love and his desire to enter into union with those upon whom he has set his affection. And it says that God has chosen them. Why? Well, it's, uh, or how? It's according to the foreknowledge. His foreknowledge. His knowing them in a way of love and compassion and mercy before the foundation of the world. And who is it by? God the Father. And who does the work? The Holy Spirit. Notice, through sanctification of the Spirit. That means being, setting, uh, being set apart. It is exactly the same language that we saw last week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 13, where Paul writes, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We believe. Why do we believe? Because the Spirit sets us apart. Now this is one way of saying it. Christ spoke of it in John chapter 6, pointing back to the glories of the new covenant, that they will all be taught of God. Who comes to Christ? Those that are taught of God. This is Paul's way of speaking of that. It is the Holy Spirit that sets us apart and brings us to belief in the truth. And it's the same type of thing that Peter is speaking of in chapter 1, verse 2 of his first epistle. <clears throat> it is, they are elect, these blessed strangers, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, not through their particular choice as such, but through the work of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The word obedience there, um, at least with some comparison of other passages, is probably not talking about our obedience once we become Christians, but pointing to what is often referred to as the obedience of faith, believing the gospel. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a command. Belief is an obedience to that command. Now, we're not saved because we do a work. That's, that's not what's being pointed to. But brethren, believing God is obedience to what God commands. We're commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're drifting here, don't walk out of here with me teaching work salvation. <laughs> Come back to, to ground zero here and, and, and realize that what's being spoken of here is obedience to the faith means faith that obeys. It. We hear the call of the gospel and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ which ushers us into a life of obedience to the commands of God, none of which saves us, none of those works save us as such. And what I mean by that is, uh, we are not saved by works, but by grace. But if the works are not there, we have no reason to believe that we're saved. That's not a contradiction. The works are the fruit of regeneration. So, having made all the caveats, we live in a day where you have to put so many footnotes in, you can lose your, your, uh, your train of thought. But the point is that here it is 
likely to be exactly what's being said in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Turn over there. <clears throat> Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the numbers of the discipline of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now what that means is they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they walked with the Lord. Not talking about being saved by works. And this is likely the same type of thing that Peter is referring to here. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a reference to being cleansed by the precious and holy blood of Jesus Christ, elect by God according to His love before time through the glorious work of the Holy Spirit setting us apart unto our responsibility, believing and walking in a newness of life. Second Peter chapter one verse ten says, "Therefore, the wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fail. Your election sure. Make sure. Make it sure. You're professing to be a believer. Are you truly God's child? Are you truly one that He has chosen from before the foundation of the world?" Well, how would you know? It isn't because we look into the book and he says, Oh, here it is. You know, I've got the, the, the book of life here and you may look in it and here's your name on that page. But brethren, I'm saying to you, as certainly as if God has done that, if we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, saving faith lays hold of a promise that is as certain as if we were looking in God's book. His promises are that sure and that certain. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as you look in His book, you find that this is His great and grand and glorious purpose. And those whom He chooses will believe on His Son and they will walk with Him. Well, I'm... Second figure I've run over when I and both times I thought I didn't have enough. Uh, let me close this by saying the scriptures testify that God speaks of his children as the elect. Now, not only have we spent several weeks looking at passages that have God as the subject, choosing and election as and electing as the verbs and and uh, people as the objects <clears throat> unto salvation, but that's the very way that God's people are addressed in Scripture. Yes, there are other ways. We're called the sheep, we're called the church, we're called the bride. But God's people are called the chosen, the elect. For the elect's sake, God's, God shortens the days of great tribulation, Matthew twenty four twenty two. With the sound of great trumpet, the angels shall gather the elect. They're not going to gather an idea. They're going to gather God's chosen, His people from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Romans 8.33 says, shall we, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The election obtained what the apostates 
of Israel did not. Romans 11:7. As the elect of God, His people are to put on mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind. It means something to be chosen of God. Paul recognized the election of the Thessalonians. Paul himself was an apostle according to the faith of God's elect. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Peter wrote to those, as we've just read, that were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he urges his brethren to make their calling and election sure. Matthew 20, 16 says, So shall the last be first and the first last. Many, many are called, but few chosen. Chosen. Mark thirteen twenty. Except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom He hath chosen, He hath shortened the days. I mean, what a blessed, holy redundancy! The chosen whom He hath chosen. But brother, there there are those kinds of statements all through the Scripture. God is choosing people unto glorious salvation in Christ. Paul delights in this doctrine. He's not ashamed of it. He opens his epistle to the Ephesians with it. He often speaks of it and glories in God. Brethren, we should rejoice in it as well. It should not be a battering ram against people with whom we disagree. It should be the occasion for which we praise and glorify our God. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we don't defend the faith, that we do not stand the ground and say, this is why we believe what we believe. But far too often over the years, I've seen people simply jump on this one note and beat it to death. Brethren, we want to rejoice in what God has done. And pray that those who do not see it and do not rejoice with it, that God would grant them what He has granted to us. But we certainly didn't figure it out. And some of us in this very room, at one time, as I myself did, stood vehemently against this doctrine and argued till I was blue in the face against it. Till the day came when I bowed my head before God and realized that He was God. Oh, brethren... May the Lord help us in these things to understand and to give Him glory. Let's pray. Thank You, Father, for these things. We need You and we pray that You would teach them to our hearts. And Father, may we rejoice in them. And may we be uh, delighted to speak to others of them. To stand firmly in them. But Lord, not to use them in uh, an unkind way. May we never be ashamed of Thy truth. Ever stand in it. But, oh, Father, may the world see us glory in what You've done. And not simply argue with it. May You receive all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.